Good morning, church. I don't know about you guys, but I like Jackie's haircut. If you uh, turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 12, please. I'm going to be reading uh, verse 1 through 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, a vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him again shamefully away. Again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not ever read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for bringing us all here together today, Lord God, and blessing this place, Lord. I just pray that your spirit will move in a mighty way, Lord. Open up our eyes, our ears, and our minds, Lord God. Just let your word run into our minds, Lord God. Just let your word be heard here today, Lord God. I just ask that uh, you anoint Jackie once again, Lord God, and just uh, use him. Lord, I just thank you for this day, Lord, and I just ask that uh, whatever it is that uh, holds us back from sharing our faith, Lord God, I just pray that you remove that and just uh, help us to spread your word throughout the world, Lord God, and just uh, allow us to desire you above all else, not just here this morning, Lord God, but every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we take a look at our text this morning in uh, Mark chapter 12, we are met with uh, the parabole, uh, something that is an illustration that everybody could understand that Jesus would cast down beside another truth so that when he gave the illustration, those who listened would know what he was talking about. And if you look around uh, chapter 12, the people... Who were listening got it, right? They understood what it was that he was talking about. When we come to, uh, to a parable, and we come to an opportunity to see this teaching of Christ, it's important that we also try to let a Scripture interpret Scripture for us. 
So in an effort to do that, before we dive too far into this, let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, if you want to join me there. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning uh, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. And this is what Isaiah the prophet, led by the Holy Spirit, lays out for us. Now, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. And he dug it up and he cleared out its stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Now please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be burned. And break down its wall, and it will be trampled down. I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, they are his pleasant plant. And he, he looked for justice, but behold, oppression. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And Isaiah, the prophet, lays out a, a similar story about the vineyard. He tells us, who the vineyard is, but I want us to kind of see more than just national Israel, because that won't make sense in the parable that we're going to look at here in just a couple of moments. And what he's saying is that God planted this, this vineyard and he expected it to bring forth good grapes. Now, the difference between good grapes and wild grapes is uh, good grapes you can eat and wild grapes are putrid. That's the idea. They're rotten. They're no good. You can't eat them. You can't use them. There's no value to them. So he planted it and he cared for it and he took over and he, and he watched over it and he, he, he had a wall of protection and a hedge to keep out the animals and he dug it and he fertilized it and he, and he expected that it would bring forth good fruit. And what the prophet is saying is God has done all this for the nation of Israel. Now, what's the fruit that God's looking for? He said he was looking for justice and righteousness. But what he found was oppression and uh, a cry for help. In other words, rather than being or treating people in a right way, they were, they were oppressing the masses. And so uh, in their oppression, there is a, a group of people not allowed into the circle that are crying for help. Now, all through the Old Testament, guys, God laid out His desire. We see the kingdom of God established from the beginning, don't we? I mean, what was, it, what was the Garden of Eden, if not kingdom of God? Adam and Eve, there, everything's perfect, everything's good, right? God's in control, God's in charge. We see the fall of mankind. We see mankind move from that place. But really, there's been a a representation of the kingdom of God all the way through. And what was the purpose of the kingdom of God? It wasn't just to keep that information to themselves, was it? What was Israel supposed to do when God 
condescended from on high and revealed himself to mankind. Was it just for Israel, for nobody else? The Bible says that, that God did that so that they could be a light unto the Gentiles. So that there would be an expression of the revelation of God, a representative, a people, a, a priesthood, if you will, that could affect the world around them. But what happened to Israel is the world around them affected them, rather than them affecting the world. You guys get what I'm saying? So they were infiltrated by idolatry and false worship and all these ideas. And so the Lord said, I took care of you and I revealed myself to you and I poured myself out and I shown you these truths and these ideas that you could then be my voice, be my hands, be my feet. But rather you've been caught up in false worship. And so what happens is God says, I'm going to take away the protection. And so we see the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom goes into captivity. 150 years later, the southern kingdom goes into captivity. We see them spend 70 years in captivity, come out and enter back into the land. But from that point, I just want you to kind of put, get, get in, your, in your mind a, a timeline. From that point, from, from the, the time where, where God took his hand off of them, there was no representation of the people of the presence of God for 400 years. You got Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back in, they rebuild the wall, they rebuild the temple, but it's a pale comparison to what existed before. And there's no real revival that takes place. There's no, nothing really happens. They just get back in the land. But it's not really them because they find that they're having trouble with the people around them. So they asked a young nation for help. The young nation they asked for help was Rome. You guys heard of them, right? And when we see the time of Christ, who's in control of the nation of Israel? Rome is, right? You got Pilate ruling in Palestine and a puppet king. So you've had 400 years of quiet, 400 years of silence, as God prepares uh, the stage for Messiah. But you have the, the same thing. What, who was supposed to be the representation of God to the people? Or the priesthood, right? How would we, what would we call them? The scribes and the Pharisees. Now when Jesus comes on the scene, who is it that's constantly battling with Messiah rather than proclaiming Messiah? The scribes and the Pharisees, right? The very ones who were supposed to be the representation that say, Messiah, here's Messiah, Messiah has come. They're the ones who are fighting against what Jesus is, has come to do. They, they're fighting against what, what God was preparing to do. And where was he preparing to do it? According to our story today, in the vineyard. In the nation he had set aside. At the time he had set, at just the right time, at just the right place, he's going to bring forth Messiah. So when we look at Mark chapter 12, verse 1, we begin to see the analogies. What are the analogies that he's laying out for us? Let's look, Mark 12, 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. Well, so far it's not too complicated, right? Who is the one who built the, the vineyard? Well, God built the vineyard. 
It's his vineyard. He put it together. So we know that the man who builds a vineyard, the, the picture, that's God the Father. What is the vineyard? We saw in Isaiah 5 the vineyard was Israel. But that's an easy answer to just say it's, it's Israel, with, but, we, but we lose sight of, of what's happening in this story. Because if, if, the, if the vineyard's Israel, then, then Israel's been done and there should be new leadership coming into Israel. But that's not what we see happening. It's not new leadership in Israel. So when we look at the vineyard, it's more than just national Israel. It's the kingdom of God. It's the proclamation of who He is. It's the proclamation of what He's come to do. It's a proclamation of the gospel, the good news, salvation that was to go to the nations. It was to happen there right in Jerusalem, right? Right in the middle of Israel. God chose that place. He prepared that place. He anointed a people. He presented to that people the understanding and revelation of who He was. And then He expected them to be able or willing, if you will, to proclaim His truth. But that's not what He found. He expected good grapes. But that's not what grew. So He says, we have the owner, the, the God the Father, the vineyard. Judaism, Israel, but also with a picture of the, of the overall kingdom. The purpose. I want you to see the purpose behind the nation. And then who are the vine dressers? Who are the ones in charge? Well, that's the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Scribes and the Pharisees, they're the guys who are taking care of things in, in uh, for lack of a better term, in God's absence. So they're taking care of things, preparing the ground, and, and he's expecting... To be able to bring forth harvest. Now look at verse 2. It says, Now at the vintage time, at the time of harvest, he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and they beat him, and they sent him away empty handed. And again he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. <coughs> and again <coughs> he sent another. And him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. So the next thing we see in the story are the servants. So who were the servants? They're the prophets. They're the people God sent. Over Did God ever leave His people without a, without a voice? No, He was constantly sending His prophets. We just read from Isaiah, right? We've got... Prophets everywhere. Prophets coming and, and sharing the word of the Lord. Saying, listen, you guys are off track. You're, you're, you've allowed sin to affect your life. And you're not bringing forth any fruit. The time of Messiah had come. But, you're, but you're not, you're, your hearts aren't ready. John the Baptist, the last prophet. What did he come for? What was the purpose? To call the people to repentance, right? To repent of your sin so that, so that you can be in the right place for, for God to use. So the Bible tells us that God can't use a proud. Who's He use? The Bible says He uses the humble, right? The humble. And what's the difference between proud and humble? We can fake humble. Well, let's think of it in different terms. God uses the repentant. He cannot use the non-repentant. God uses the one who is willing to fall on his face before God and say, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me. 
who, who, who's not constantly looking at other people and their failures or their struggles, but one who is humble before God is one who says, Lord, have mercy on me. The reason that God brought the nation of Israel back out of captivity is because one man, a guy named Daniel, who was taken away when he was 16, never allowed to marry, never allowed to have a family, never allowed, that was God's plan and purpose for his life, never allowed to have any of those things from the age of 16 on. He's an old man. And he's in the the Babylon, and he's part of the Medo-Persian Empire now. He started as part of the Babylonian Empire. Now he's part of the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Bible says of Daniel, nowhere in the Bible does the Bible say that Daniel sinned. Now, I'm not trying to say Daniel never sinned. I'm just saying we don't know of any. Well, let's think of a couple other characters. You know of David's sin? Oh, but we didn't have to think too hard about that one. What about Abraham's sin? You know about Abraham's sin? Uh, what about Jacob's sin? You know about Jacob's sin? So there are characters in the Bible we don't have to concentrate on. wonder what he did wrong. We know the stories, right? But of Daniel, we have no story. No story of Daniel's sin. And it's to illustrate a point. Because Daniel, studying the scriptures, realized that the time of the captivity was almost over. That the people had been in captivity for 70 years and that God was going to restore or send the people back into the land. And as he recognizes that, the man for whom we have no sin recorded falls down on his face before God and asks God to forgive him for his nation's sin. Is that how we pray for our nation? Do we pray for our nation that as though the, the sins and failures of our nation are our fault? Let's, let's erase all the stuff we've talked about so far and let me make some application. Okay, let's say the vineyard is the United States of America. Who's the vine dressers? The church. God expects fruit. Is there fruit? If he sends his, his uh, servants to gather up the fruit, is there, is there fruit? Are we different than the scribes and the Pharisees and those who were before us? Are we fulfilling our purpose, right? We, we said, Jesus said at the end of his ministry, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So that's everything, right? Is there, there's no authority outside of that authority? All authority. What's he tell us to do? Go therefore. Where? Every nation. Everywhere you can go. For what purpose? To tell them. Right? To make disciples. So we're making disciples. How do we make disciples? We introduce them to Jesus Christ. Remember Andrew and Peter? Andrew came to his brother Peter said, Peter, man, you've got to come check this guy out. I'm pretty sure he's Messiah. Brings him over. He, he meets Jesus. Boom. He's a disciple. You get what I'm saying? So we're bringing people to Jesus. We're teaching them the things Jesus commanded. There's things Jesus commanded uh, our, what our lives ought to look like. So we're supposed to teach them that. We're supposed to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, we're, and to recognize that Jesus is with us from now to the end of time. And the scripture tells us that he's gone away to prepare a place for us. And one day he will come again. And my question is, when the owner of the vine dresser, when the owner of the vineyard comes... Is he going to find us in a good place or a bad place? Are we fulfilling our responsibility? 
Because when we read stories like this, guys, it's not just so we can look at it and say, what a bunch of knuckleheads. Look what they were doing. We read stories like this so we can reflect. So we can put ourselves in the story and say, how do I, who am I in this story? Who am I and who do I want to be? And then why wait for tomorrow to make any of those changes, make any of those things different? So we look at what Jesus has to say and he says, look, I sent prophets. I gave you word. Do any of us have a doubt on what God wants from us? We really shouldn't have a doubt because the book we carry into church is God's word. The, the God of the universe condescended from heaven provided us his word. If you don't read it, it's on you. God's not going to read it to you. But there it is. What is laid out in that is God's will, right? It's, it's the things that God has for us. The way God wants us to live. How God wants us to minister. How God wants us to move. How God wants us to, to be. How He wants us. Does God want us to affect our culture? Or does He want our culture to affect us? When God built the vineyard, it was so that the vineyard, the joy, the wine, the fruitfulness of the vineyard would affect the nations around it. So the same for us. When, when as God has built His church, doesn't He want His church to affect the cultures around it? Not, not to compromise, not to try to say, oh yeah, we're, we're, well, all this stuff was written so long ago, none of that stuff matters anymore. No, it's to take the truth of God's Word and stand on that truth and proclaim the truth to, to those who will hear. It's not our responsibility. To, you, can you change anybody? Well, I should probably hand that out to all the wives. Can you change anybody? <laughs> what about husbands? Have you been changed? Maybe. <coughs> the point is, we can't affect change. You think you can? You're crazy. You cannot affect change in someone else. How is change affected? By the Spirit of God working in somebody's life. When the Spirit of God is working in somebody's life, He brings about change. We want the Spirit of God working in our life. We want the Spirit of God moving through our lives. That should be our desire. We want to see the kingdom of God expressed in our culture. We want to see our government run the way God's word lays out a government should run. We want to see our world making changes to turn away from a culture of death and become a culture of life. But you realize, don't you recognize that the, the, the current culture is a culture of death? There's no hopefulness. There's no life coming forth. And as a result, we are on a one-way trip. <laughs> the wrong way. So God, in His infinite wisdom, put a vineyard right in the middle of Buell. And the question is, what kind of vineyard are we going to be? Are we a vineyard that's going to allow the joy and truth of God to, to bring forth good fruit and affect our culture or not. This is the story that Jesus is laying out to those of His day. As scribes and Pharisees and the people are gathered around Him, He walked into town on the 10th of Nisan. For the next four days, He's going to be examined and then they're going to crucify Him. 
And as they're looking to examine him and see if he's worthy or if he's worth anything, he's telling them this parable. He said, I sent these guys to you. And because I sent them, they had to go. Has God sent us? Have we been commissioned? Absolutely we've been commissioned. He has sent us out. So we need to go. But I want you to think about what Jesus said as he's standing before Jerusalem. It's written for us in the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. Verse 34, listen to what Jesus said. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were what? Not willing. So God says, I want to, I want to gather you. I want to work and move and do incredible things in and through you. I want to do You think God's will has changed now and, and now He doesn't want to do that anymore? You think God doesn't want to move through His church? You think God doesn't want to affect people around us? You think God won't show up if you stand in front of somebody and just want to proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? You think God won't come? You think He won't move? He won't be there? He won't be a part? He absolutely will. He absolutely will. He wants to do that. He wants to do that. He wants to give us victory. God didn't send us here so that we would suffer defeat all our lives only to be raptured and be gathered together with Him. Do we really think that's God's plan and purpose? Oh, I'm just going to leave you guys down there and let you get whooped. Then I'll eventually come get you. Or do you think He left us here with a purpose? Didn't he say, do business, occupy till I come? He gave us a commission. He gave us a call and a direction, something that we're supposed to be busy about doing. He laid all these things out for us, even as I believe he did them. Well, let's look again. Mark chapter 12, verse 6. Then he says in verse 6, Therefore, still having one son. So he sent all the prophets and they killed them. They wouldn't listen. Is it our job to make anybody listen? No. Is it our job to go? Yeah. Yeah, so we go. So he said, oh, I will send my son, his beloved, his beloved, agapete, agap, agapeton, agapeton, his beloved, his most loved, his most loved. He also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. Who's the beloved son? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus. What's his relationship to the Father? Dearly beloved, most beloved. The Father loves the Son with a love that we can't even begin to understand. I mean, we, we struggle just in the expression of normal love, don't we? But, but God calls us to agape, right? Self-sacrificing a love. A love that loves just for the sake of the one upon which you're spending your love and expects absolutely nothing in return. That's a whole other animal altogether, isn't it? But this is the love between the Father and the Son. Most Loved. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He... His what? 
only begotten Son. When we talk about that, only begotten Son, it's uh, probably a somewhat unfortunate translation because when we use that word, people think about a born one, little born one. But the word is monogene. Monogene means one and only unique. Doesn't doesn't really mean anything about being born. It just means I'm sending my one and only unique son. I'm sending my one and only unique, the most prized thing, person, being that 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 is God. I'm I'm sending that my my greatest treasure is being sent to you. What do we know about the son? The son does the son have a right to the vineyard? Is it his vineyard? Right? I just want you to kind of kind of wrap your mind around all these different pictures. The son owns the vineyard, right? It said he's the heir. He's the heir. It's his vineyard. He's the heir. So so he has a right to the vineyard and he's coming. First uh, uh, John 1:11 says that Jesus came to his own and what happened? His own received him not. He came into his own. He came to his own vineyard. It's his. But they did not receive him. In fact, Scripture tells us that they kill him. They kill him and throw him outside the vineyard. Outside. It's kind of an important picture because when we look at it in Hebrews, it gives us this, this, uh, this picture along with it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11. Listen to what it says. It says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned where? Outside the camp, right? Not in the camp. So the sacrifice not in the camp. Now remember, when we're talking about Hebrews, we're talking about the tabernacle. The temple didn't exist. He's, he's looking back to the tabernacle. The tabernacle there in the midst of the camp, the, the place where God was, the sacrifice would take place outside of that. They'd be burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered where? Outside the gate. You want to know one of the the, the really cool things? If you guys come with us to to Israel next year, we're going to go to the garden tomb. There's there's two places. People can argue endlessly about which one is the actual burial place of Christ. Uh, A lot of people won't agree with me, but I probably lean more toward the traditional site than I do to the Protestant site, uh, which is the Church of the Open Sepulchre. None of that really matters. But if we're at the garden tomb where we can see the tomb, you guys have all seen pictures of the tomb, right? Uh, Blocks of stone uh, set in the face of this cave where they would lay uh, bodies. And in the garden tomb... We'll, we'll visit the tomb, and then we'll go over and we'll, we'll have a, a quiet place where we can do some worship and some communion. And if it works out just right, it'll be right next to a, a bus station. Because the bus station, the bus stop, and where the buses come is right next to a hill that people call the Place of the Skull. Golgotha. And you can look at this rock formation. It looks like a skull. It just, it just does. If you look at it, it's, it's kind of like looking at clouds. You know, look, that looks like a pig. That one looks like a cow. You look at this rock and it's like, man, that kind of looks, like looks like a skull. And that was the place where they would bring people to put them to death. Well, what was the way they put people to death in Israel? 
Stoning, right? So it's in the middle of the stone quarry where they would dig all the stones out. So they would bring people there to stone them. And it just naturally translated to when the Romans uh, would, would issue capital punishment, they used the same place. The stone quarry, Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Where is it? Right outside the gate. You can stand at Golgotha. You can see the garden tomb over this way. Golgotha over here and you can look at the gate. Outside the gate. Not in the city. Just like the Old Testament sacrifices. See, Jesus is a picture of every part of the tabernacle, the Old Testament sacrifice, of all the stuff that was brought before. Jesus is a picture of it all. And here He is. He is the one who's outside. But look what Hebrews says in verse 13. Therefore, let us go forth to Him. Where? Outside the camp. Why? Because the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrificial system inside is no longer able to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. In order for us to be reconciled to God, where do we have to go? Outside. To what? Calvary. We've got to go out to the place where Jesus Christ paid it all. We've got to go to Him. There's no other religious system. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. We must be saved by the name of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice. How is it that we are saved? Is it just because Jesus died and it naturally is imputed to us? The Bible tells that we have to repent and believe. That we fall down before the cross. We fall on our knees. We fall on our face. And we tell the God of the universe... Forgive me. I'm here. Cover me in your blood. Make me right. Make me righteous. And the blood of Jesus Christ washes away our reproach. And He takes what was once as scarlet and He makes it white as snow. He washes us clean. This is the picture. The picture of the sacrificial system. He's saying it's no longer capable. We have to go out to Calvary. But look at verse 9, chapter 12 of Mark. He says, therefore, <coughs> what's the owner of the vineyard going to do? So God's saying, here's the vineyard. It's supposed to shine light. It hasn't really done it. never brought forth any good fruit. And so I try to send to my servants, but they beat them and they kill them. Uh, they wipe out the prophets that I sent them. So I'm going to send them my only son. My one and only most loved a being in the universe. I'm going to send them because they'll respect him. And they kill him. So the question is, what is the owner of the vineyard going to do? What is it that, that God is going to do about this? What is he going to do? It says in verse 9, he will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. So he's going to do what he said back in Isaiah again. He's going to remove his protection. He's not going to take care of it anymore. He's going to let it collapse. Well, what does he say? He's going to give what? The vineyard to others, right? He's going to give the vineyard to others. I don't believe he's talking about national Israel. I don't believe he's talking about, I'm going to give Israel to others uh, um, to, to rule. Because then it would be like the, the Israel was somehow linked to salvation, which it's not. We get saved going outside now. 
So I think he's talking about his kingdom. I think he's talking about his gospel. I've given the good news, the gospel, the message, the revelation of God was given to this vineyard. But he didn't do anything with it. So I'm going to take the revelation of God that's been poured out in Israel. And I'm going to give it to others. So who's he give it to? He gives it to the church. He gives it to the church. Not that, am I saying the church replaces Israel? No. We studied Romans 9, 10, and 11. God still has a plan and a purpose for his chosen in, uh, in Israel. God's still going to do a work. But, but right now, that work is supposed to be being accomplished in us. Right? We are now the vine dressers. We're now the ones been given the keys. Like, like Jesus told Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom. For what purpose? That he would unlock, that he might open up eyes, that people would see the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done and, and what he's accomplishing for us. So he says, I'm going to give it to another. Now, when does this happen? Look, uh, Emperor Vespasian sends his general Titus in 70 AD and they wipe it out. Until 1948, there was nothing there. Just a bunch of stones everybody fought over. The Ottoman Empire fought over them. The, the Christian, quote, <laughs> empire fought over them. People fought over them, right and left. But there's nothing there. Just a pile of rocks. Everybody wanted to be able to say they had the place where Jesus walked. That's all it was for till 1948. That's all it ever amounted to. But he says, I will give the vineyard to others. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10. John 10, verse 16. Remember in John 10, Jesus saying, my sheep hear my voice, right? So, so if you're his sheep, you hear his voice. And when Jesus calls, you come. Right? So he, said, he says in verse 16 of John 10, Other sheep I have that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be how many flocks? How many shepherds? One flock, one shepherd. <coughs> one flock. He says there are people. When, when he's, ta- he's, he's in Israel, he's talking to the Jews. When he says there are other sheep that are part of this flock, who's he talking about? The Gentiles, the nations. So he's saying they're going to come. They're going to come. It was all centered in this vineyard, but now... There's going to, I think, there's going to be many vineyards. There's going to be, if, if you wanted to see every local church as a vineyard, I think you could do so. The opportunity to take the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, and allow that to affect the community around, that there would be fruit coming from the vineyard and affecting those who are in that area. So as he lays this all out, he says, I give the vineyard to others. I, I think this is, is, this is looking to the church. And then look where he moves. In verse 10, he says, Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Who did it? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, I want you to kind of go with me. We talk about Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. Something like that. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. You guys remember Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he says to his wise guys, somebody needs to interpret my dream. But I'm not going to tell you what I dreamed. You have to tell me what I dreamed. If you're so smart, you should know it. 
So you, uh, you tell me what I dream and tell me what it means. And nobody could do it. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill them all. So Daniel says, well, let me see if, if there is a God in heaven and he reveals dreams. Let me ask God if he'll give it to me. So Daniel goes before God. God gives him the dream and its interpretation. And he tells him about the statue he dreamed about. Remember the head of gold? Chest of silver? Uh, uh, body of bronze? Legs of iron? Feet? Iron mixed with clay? And then what happens? He's, he seizes this uh, statue, which, which Daniel tells us is a multiple group of different kingdoms on the earth, right? Babylonian kingdom, Medo-Persian kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, and the Roman kingdom. And during the time of the Roman kingdom, the fourth, the fourth phase of the statue, what happens? He says, at that moment, a stone, not cut out with hands... From the heavens, does what? Strikes the, the statue in its feet, grinds it into powder, and then that stone grows and fills the whole earth. Well, what's a stone? During the fourth kingdom, what kingdom was that? Rome. When did Jesus come? During the Roman Empire? And when Jesus came, when that stone came, and it crushes the kingdoms of the earth, what does it do? It grows. And grows. And grows. One day, is Jesus Christ going to come back and rule and reign as king on the earth? Absolutely he's going to. Absolutely he's going to. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? We have a job. we got work to do, right? We're supposed to have good fruit. Right? What's the fruit? What's the fruit that God's looking for out of the believer, out of the church? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering, self-control. There's, there's the fruit. What is it all expressed in, ultimately? Love. That, that love comes out. Love for who? Love for God and who else? Love for our neighbor. Love God, love people. This is not complicated. Love God, love people. This is a fruit that's supposed to come out of my life. So if I love God, I want to keep His commandments, right? I want to walk like He's telling me to walk. I want to, I want to exist the way He's telling me to exist. If I love people, I'm going to tell them about God and what He is, is looking for, what He requires. Otherwise, I don't love them. Love doesn't just let somebody perish. Love is willing to tell the truth. This is what this is the fruitfulness that should be coming, be bubbling out of the church and affecting the world around it. So when he says, Have you not read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected. Who are the builders in this story? Who's the builders? Who's be, who's rejecting Jesus Christ? Right? The religious leaders. The religious leaders are rejecting the Christ. They're rejecting the Messiah. So he's saying, The stone that you're rejecting is the chief of the corner. Has become. How is it that it became the chief of the corner? Because it was rejected. How is it that Jesus saves us? Because he died for us. Because he was rejected. Because of those things, God Almighty has worked out eternal salvation through his name. Through the name of Jesus Christ. If we'll bow our knee to Jesus Christ. Then you don't ever have to worry about bowing your knee anywhere else. We just bow to him. We need another Messiah? No, I don't need a Messiah. I got a Messiah. I got Jesus Christ. Do I need another king? No, I got a king. I got Jesus. I don't need another king. I don't need any of those things. Does God tell me what I need 
to, to live the life He wants me to live. It's all, I have it all. All I got to do is do it. All I got to do is live it. All I have to do is be what it is He's asking me to be. That stone. The, what's the chief of the corner accomplish? There's two ways to look at the chief cornerstone, guys. That one on which everything is set. So it's square and plain. It's, it's, it's flat and square. That's, that's a picture of the chief corner. But there's another one in Israel. See, we, we always think of the chief cornerstone like that foundational stone that we build on. But the story is that the stone was rejected. So the stone was rejected. You have a hard time building it, the building, if it's not there. Right? Oh. So if it's supposed to be on the bottom, it's the chief of the corner. In a Middle Eastern mind, the same exact word for chief cornerstone is also used... For keystone. You guys know what a keystone is? You ever seen the arch over a door? And you start putting all these stones. And they're all cut the same. You see a ton of them in Israel when you go. They're all cut the same. Square stones. Laid in an arch like this. But then they get straight overhead. And right overhead they put a different kind of stone. It doesn't look like all the rest of the stones. It, it is angled on both sides. It wedges in. And because it's the keystone. It holds everything up two ways to look at it whichever picture makes you happier jesus is the one that makes us straight plains us out everything needs to be in line with jesus christ or jesus christ is the keystone he holds it all up you take the keystone out everything falls the keystone holds it all together the the rock or the stone that the builders rejected can't you picture that being a keystone that comes, it's all cut funny. What am I supposed to do with this? Where am I going to put this in? But once they build the arch, hey, where's that crooked stone at? We need that crooked stone to fit just right, right here. So the stone that the builders rejected, it has become the thing that we need most. This is the Lord's doing. This is what God did. Now, just in case you guys think, man, it, I don't know. I don't know if I can buy all this stuff, Jackie. Look at verse 12. They sought to lay hands on him. Why? They feared the multitude, but they knew that he spoke the parable, how? Against them. So they knew what Jesus was saying. It's not, it wasn't a mystery to the guys who were listening. Who's the guys who wanted to kill Jesus? Scribes and the Pharisees. So they know they're the ones who killed the prophets. They know they're the ones who are going to kill the son. They know exactly what it is he's talking about. But it doesn't matter, because they're going to do it anyway. They have a plan and a purpose. And so we look at it and we go, okay, this is, this is good. And, that, and I just don't want us to look at that and say, okay, yeah, those, those, those dumb scribes and Pharisees, I wish they would have got it right. I want us to see our own vineyard, our own responsibility to God, our own willingness to be fruitful, our own willingness to affect our culture, not allow our culture to affect us. Those are all the same things that made Israel of no effect. They let the culture come in and dictate. And they just adopted all that false worship and mixed it in to the middle, right? They just stirred the pot, put it all in the same pot. It's, it's good. Then, then we're able to, to reach a lot of people. But that's not what God calls us. He says, come out from among them and be separate. Be holy. Be afraid to stand up and say, you know what, I bow my knee to Jesus Christ. And because I bow my knee to Jesus Christ, this, it's not okay. That, it's not okay. 
It's not that long ago, just been a few days. I don't really have the news, so I kind of catch news late. Uh, and uh, you guys remember the deal with uh, Kim Davis? She's not doing it. She wasn't doing any marriage license for homosexual couples in Kentucky. Yeah. Everybody kind of know what I'm talking about. When I first when I first heard about that, I was like, man, that's kind of lame. I mean, aren't you supposed to do what the what the government tells you to do? And if if you can't do the job, then probably ought to step out of the job. You know, I don't know. It's kind of what I'm thinking about Kim Davis. And then I got to hear the whole story, which you probably won't ever hear on CNN, by the way. So what was the whole story? The state of Kentucky has a law as a state that they will not recognize any other marriage except between a man and a woman. Kim Davis is an elected official sworn in to uphold the laws of Kentucky. So as a sworn in individual, she's just doing her job. Until they change the law, she should not do anything different. But you know what? I don't really care about that part. Because <coughs> I was watching the, I don't know if you got to see the news footage. They made a big circus out of it. And they brought some guys in to try to get a marriage license. And she says no. And I thought she did pretty good. I, I might have flipped my lid. But she don't. She stays pretty mellow talking to him. And there's one scene in all that where they're saying, By whose authority are you not giving us a license? By whose authority? And she's trying to explain, but they're kind of, you know, shouting her down. By whose authority? And finally she just looks at him and says, God's. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool to just say, I'm fulfilling my job. And the news crews can do whatever they want, say whatever they want. That's just the facts. I'm fulfilling my job. And the bottom line is, uh, I'm fulfilling it for God. And they, they, they try to bust her chops. Well, we've been together 17 years. You ever been that long with anybody? I think she's been married five times. And she's got a, she's a sinner. <laughs> Go figure. And so they, they said, have you ever been with anybody that long? You know, and they're just, she don't respond. She just, she just is cordial to them, but, but won't do what they want. And they, they put her in jail. Doesn't that make you wonder? It kind of made me wonder. Because at first I thought, I don't know that I, I, I really agree with what she's doing. But after I started getting some of the facts of what really is going on, it's like, wow. You mean they put her in jail for doing what the law of Kentucky stated as a sworn-in individual? They put her in jail for that? Do you really think that's what they put her in jail for? No. What they put her in jail for? Because she's a Christian. They put her in jail. But the cool thing is, far as her vineyard goes, she said, outside's not going to affect me. I want to affect them. And she did it as lovingly as she was capable of. And they weren't none too loving toward her. You know? And just as, a, just as a small, not trying to make a big deal, just a small point of this is kind of how it works. That we stand up for Christ in a world that is opposed to Him. That we stand up for Christ in a world that's going in the opposite direction of Him. That we, it's, 
Look, I don't know if you guys are aware. If you if you look on the news, it's time to pick sides. I'm assuming since you're here, you picked one. So if you picked one, then let's be one. Let's be who it is Christ is asking us to be. Not mean and and jerks and all that, but but loving, but willing to say, no, that's wrong. No, this is not okay. One other quick example and we'll pray and go. Shout your abortion. Hashtag. Shout your abortion. Started by a young lady who is very proud of the abortion that she had. And she wants all the world to be able to shout about the abortion they had and be proud of it. And it was, it was at least in some small ways, hijacked by some believers who got on there and did what she was asking. They shouted about their abortion, but gave witness to Jesus Christ as the one who forgave them for what they had done. And it was an opportunity to allow a way the culture was going sideways to bring it back around for the glory of Christ. It was not done in a hateful way or a hurtful way, but simply God's people saying, yeah, I'm not down with that. Why aren't you down with that? Because God said, that's bad. That's all I need. That's all I need. It's crazy. We talk about that particular subject. You know, most of the rhetoric is about rape and incest. Do you know on Shout Your Abortion, how many of the stories were about rape and incest? None. Zip. It's just wrong because God says it's wrong. Look, we are the vineyard. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And we need to align ourselves with Him and help this world get straight. And the only way it happens is if you and I, we work together being the people God's asked us to be. For such a time as this. This is our time. Israel had her time. It's our time. It's our time. What's the history book going to write about us? What's the history book going to write about Buell? I can't control what they do everywhere else. I got my own little neck of the woods. Can we affect our culture for Jesus Christ? Amen. Let's do it. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come before you and we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would move in a mighty way in our midst because it's our desire to lay everything in our life out by the chief cornerstone, to allow you to hold everything in our life up, that our views and our attitudes about life are not directed by what they say on the news or what our favorite news anchor has to say. Our, our attitudes and directions of life are lined up with your word, what the word tells us. So God, I pray that we would be men and women of the book, that we would be men and women who have built our hope and our dreams on the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be men and women who are not going to be hidden by the darkness, but who want to let our light shine. That we would learn the lesson of the vineyard. That we want to bring forth fruit. Because God's expecting fruit.
He's planted us here where we are so that we can affect the world around us. So God, I just pray that your spirit would move in this place. And, and if we are guilty, Lord, of, of not redeeming the time, then God, I pray you just bring upon us an attitude of repentance. It's not to make us all bummed or feel bad. It's just simply to stand before God and say, forgive me and empower me to be the man you're asking me to be. Forgive me and empower me to be the woman you're asking me to be. So that we can affect the world around us with the truth of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. God, I pray you be glorified and magnified in this place, in Jesus' name. Amen.